The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today... Population. Australia is a nation of immigrants. Almost a third of us was born overseas. Almost half of us have at least one foreign-born parent. And incredibly, one in 10 Aussies came here in just the last decade. We're among the most multicultural nations on earth and becoming more so. At least that was until COVID-19. New South Wales and Victoria will be shutting down their borders uh, from midnight tomorrow night. Now we have to act as a community and in the areas where the Chief Health Officer says uh, need to be closed, will be closed. It's something I'd never thought I'd be doing as Premier of Western Australia. A travel ban will be placed on all non-residents, non-Australian citizens coming to Australia and that will be in place from 9pm tomorrow evening. But it's not just about immigration, because while our immigration is now in freefall, our fertility rate is also plummeting. As families delay having a child, about 56,000 fewer babies are expected to be born yearly. So for the first time in more than a century, our population as a country is set to drop and the impact will likely be profound. To find out just how profound, I'm joined now by Dr. Liz Allen from the Australian National University's Centre for Social Research and Methods, and also former Immigration Department Deputy Secretary, Abel Rizvi, who reshaped our immigration policy from the late 90s, focusing on skilled migrations and pathways for overseas students to become residents. So he had a hand in designing so many of the immigration programs that I suppose are now at a halt. Liz, Abel, thank you very much for joining me today. Great to be with you. And with you, Lillard. Let's begin... I mean, I sort of sketched it out there um, really briefly, but perhaps flesh it out a little bit more for us. Help us understand just how important migration has been to the Australia that we know today. Abel, we'll start with you. I think I'd like to take us back to the 91 recession. The first thing to say is that the accounts do show that Australia's in a recession. The most important thing about that is that this is a recession that Australia had to have. I think that's an important juncture in our history around this. The 91 recession saw immigration to Australia plummet in the same way that it's plummeting now with COVID. And it did not recover after that 91 recession to the levels of net migration in the late 80s for another decade. In other words, the the recession actually held back immigration for almost a decade. We then embarked on an experiment, which I don't believe any other developed nation has ever embarked upon. And that is We used immigration to both grow the population, but also to slow the rate of population ageing. As a result of that, our median age in Australia today is 37. That compares to the OECD average of 42, and it compares to the median age in Japan of 47. Now, those differences are massive. They have an enormous impact on the way an economy operates and the way population impacts on the budget. 
Right. So that's, it's really important to understand that, isn't it? Like, so it's not as simple as just numbers of people. It's the shift in the demographic so that you have more people of working age, I suppose, supporting the older population as a way of resisting Absolutely. the aging population. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something we haven't really appreciated about the way that our immigration program has been designed? I don't think governments have talked about it very much since, since the days of Peter Costello. It's very clear that if you look, to cr- look across all developed nations and you mark the point in their history that their working age to population ratio, that is the portion of people aged 15 to 64 divided by the total population, the point at which that ratio peaked, you'll find economic growth prior to that relatively strong and you'll find economic growth after that point in every developed nation substantially weaker. Australia's working age to population ratio peaked in 2009 and it's been declining now for 10 years and it will keep declining for the next 20 years. That has very significant consequences for the way we manage our economy and for the way we manage our budget. So there's a lot to be unpacked there, but Liz, let me direct you more to the, I suppose, the social dimensions of this. We're familiar with the idea that Australia is a multicultural nation. I guess there's, at a surface level, there's a kind of obviousness to that. Are there things about that that we perhaps don't appreciate when we come to understand the impact that migration's had? I think you're right. I think overall we don't we don't recognise the great thing that we have going here in Australia. And for me, that's a major disappointment. And if we look at immigration over time, I'm going to go even further back and take us back to the baby boom cohort. The baby boom occurred after the Great Depression, after World War II, and then finally during a period of enormous um, nation building and inflows of immigration, Australia kind of got together and realised that there was the golden years and greater certainty and so had more children. The campaign worked. Couples, many of them separated for as much as six years, made up for lost time and there was a boom in births that lasted two decades. We became known as baby boomers. And then as a result of that, we had a demographic dividend. So we have a population, a cohort of of people that were filling the workforce and building uh, the government coffers, and we've enjoyed the benefits of those so-called golden years. But what's happening is that baby boom cohort is now ageing out of the workforce And so we're not replacing ourselves by lower fertility rates. And immigration has been vital to the success of ensuring, as Abul has said, is that our age structure is right for the economic circumstances that we require. Immigration helps keep Australia economically afloat. But we've not really adjusted our mentality in terms of the true nature of what multiculturalism is. And I think that we're doing a disservice to ourselves because on one hand, we have the government saying we need immigration in the budget uh, and in the kind of economic books, if you like, but allowing racism and allowing a public sentiment to hate on Australians. We're hating on ourselves and COVID has definitely shown that. Now is a time to support each other. And I remind everyone that it was Chinese Australians in particular that provided one of the greatest defences we had in those early weeks. They were the ones who first went into self-isolation. It was through their care, it was through their commitment, their patience, that actually Australia was protected in that first wave. We've got to call that sort of thing out. It's not on. 
So what's interesting about that, I think it's worth pausing at this point to recognise one particular element of it, and that is the shift away from predominantly European migration. Mm. Probably, what was that, mid to late 90s, I suppose that started, which is the Howard era, right? So John Howard really is the Prime Minister that, more than any other, ushers in that change, it seems to me, at the same time as the politics of migration seeming to push in exactly the other direction. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that we, yeah. at the same, at, on one hand, and I kind of, I term this like a duality, right? It's almost like you consider kind of two heads on the same beast. On one hand, there's one side of the beast saying, think of Tampa. When the Tampa first sailed into Australian waters after rescuing more than 400 Muslim asylum seekers, no one could have predicted the dramatic sea change ahead. I can't remember one single issue which has more transformed politics than the decision taken by the Howard government late August this year to repel by military means all future asylum seekers and boat refugees. We were being told that the people on Tampa who we wouldn't allow on our shores were bad because they were other, because they held different views and they could be terrorists. But on the other, the other head is telling us, well, maybe not even explicitly telling us, but again, in the budget figures saying how important immigration is. Yeah, right. So, Abul, I guess my observation would be that that contradiction was kind of harmonised by talking about the legitimacy of certain migration. So, the people who were involved in the Tampa affair, they were potentially terrorists. This is, remember, 9-11's not like in the background or even the foreground in a lot of this political conversation. But they were coming the wrong way. The people who come the right way, we have more control over that. That might be a bit easier. I mean, you were involved in the department, which is not the political arm of all this, but you would have seen this all going around. What was that like? Like, How did you see those sort of different ideas that were pulling in opposite directions playing out at the moment? Was the cultural politics a way of putting sugar on the pill of a lot of migration coming into Australia that might otherwise have worried people or what? What was going on there? You're certainly right. What happened with Tampa was historic and what happened around the same, almost around the same time in terms of the change in the government's attitude to the role of migration in reducing the rate of population ageing happening at the same time looks as if that represented a significant change in the way Australia approached immigration. I'd put it slightly differently. I would say, one, Australia has always been obsessed with strong border control, and that was before Howard. The universal visa system was brought in under Keating. Mandatory detention was brought in in that hiatus between Hawke and Keating. Strong border control has always been a part of Australia. It's not, not just Howard. On the other hand, we've had a, a series of prime ministers who have ever since Ben Chifley talked about the positive contribution of migration to Australia. Our commitment to migrants will continue. Post-arrival services for new citizens have been expanded greatly. Ethnic television is being introduced and we will provide support for ethnic community schools with an open admissions policy. Very few Australian prime ministers have not talked about that. So I would say we have a much longer history of strong border control and using immigration for economic benefit than just John Howard. But the shift away from Europe to Asia, I mean, this was the program that you designed. Was that, was that a deliberate shift or was that just a function of needing the population and that's where the population was? The objective was public policy, not 
composition from source countries. This composition of source countries was the outcome of the shift in public policy in terms of slowing the rate of ageing. The challenge was, how do you grow the size of the migration program without reducing selection criteria in the skill stream? And at that point, we were not generating enough applications. So the challenge was, how do you then generate the applications without reducing selection criteria? And the only way you could do it was to bring in temporary entrants, predominantly students, but also working holiday makers and skilled temporary entrants, enable them to develop their qualifications and their skills to a level they could meet the criteria, and then allow them to change status on shore. That change was about how do we grow the program rather than necessarily about uh, more temporary migration per se. And at the same time, if I can add here, that um, we're, we're not just the only country in the world that has a structural ageing matter to deal with. We're competing with the likes, uh, if I can put it that way, with the UK, with Canada, with the US, with Germany. So the countries that we've relied on historically since white colonisation for our bulk of immigration are undergoing the same um, or are confronted with the same population issues that we are. So if you like, the pool of potential is shifting away from the countries we've connected to previously to countries that are undergoing a bit of a demographic dividend, much like we've experienced with the baby boom. They've got the distribution of their population is in the right place so that they have people that are in the right age groups that are mobile and energetic and willing to take a a risk and come halfway around the world and contribute to and help build the Australia that we've come to love. You raise a really interesting idea there, Liz, which I want to come back to, which is what happens as we go through the pandemic and borders start to open up as to who gets that energy, who gets those people from around the world and and whether or not we're in some kind of competition for it. So if I forget, you are fully licensed to remind me to bring us back to that point. But well, let's jump off the point you made about those people who would come to Australia often as international students and then transition into becoming Australian citizens and permanent residents over time as a way of shifting our age base, effectively making us a younger society where we could have more working age people supporting the older population. These, it seems to me, are now exactly the people that are not coming in because of the fact that we shut our borders thanks to COVID-19. The university sector is going absolutely nuts about it and shitting all kinds of jobs. We don't know how long that will be in place, that sort of dynamic. But what do you foresee then for our economic future, given the way things have unfolded to this point and then the way things you think things might go, like the speed at which we might begin to reintegrate these people? Let's, let's assume we're at a point that, that international borders have reopened, you know, there's a vaccine or whatever, whatever plays out, and assuming it takes, I don't know, a year or two or whatever it'll take. The government is then confronted with the challenge, how do you grow the migration program if you want to continue to slow the rate of ageing, if that remains a public policy objective? Sorry, and can I interrupt there? Do you think it is still a public policy objective? I believe in the Treasury Department, in the Productivity Commission, in the Reserve Bank of Australia, the answer to that question is yes. Is it no anywhere else? (laughs) Well, there are inevitably, um, in any uh, government, a wide range of views. Sure. And and those tensions will have to play out. 
Okay. So let, let's then proceed on the basis that this is this does remain a public policy objective with the asterisk that you've just provided. And, and I think that's a reasonable assumption to, to proceed on, although, although there is merit in the government actually spending a little more time explaining that to the Australian public. Mm. Um, when we emerged out of recession in 91, growing the program was also an objective, but there were a number of factors limiting that. And the, the, the biggest factor limiting that was persistently high unemployment. Where you have persistently high unemployment, you are going to inevitably rely predominantly on either business migration or on employer-sponsored migration. What is known as unsponsored skilled migration is generally very difficult to use when unemployment is very high. The other point that I would make is that in 1991, the waiting period for access to Social Security was six months. And that meant if a person was visa to come to Australia in those general unsponsored skilled categories. And if they had sufficient capital, they could probably overcome the six months whilst they look for a job. When we resume out of COVID, it will be much harder to grow those categories because we now have a four-year wait for social security before newly arrived migrants can access social security. Having people with enough capital to last a much longer time in a much higher unemployment environment will make things very much more difficult. It sounds like what you're looking at, no matter what our targets are and no matter what the border situation is, is a significantly reduced flow of migrants. Absolutely. And if that's the case, then what economic damage are we looking at? I think, I think what that means is that the rate at which the population ages will be faster. Economic growth, including per capita economic growth, will probably be slower. And the pressure on government revenue will be greater in that uh, per capita revenue will fall and pressure on health, aged care and the aged pension will be greater. That's an interesting social mix, isn't it, Liz? Mm. What do you think happens in that situation? My greatest concern out of the current crisis that we're experiencing is that if you think about your household budget, you've got priorities Okay, think of it like a pie and you've got to divvy up this kind of finite amount of money. And that is most definitely how we're approaching our fiscal policies at the moment. We've got these economic priorities. And at the moment, we've got governments and successive governments in Australia that have proven that they are more interested in their uh, their political success and not necessarily the long-term socioeconomic success of this country. So what they're doing is they're focusing and they have focused on their short-term success, their, their short-term life expectancy, which could be as short as six months in terms of our political cycles, let's be honest. What's happening is, is this economic pie is being divvied up to those that are going to perhaps vote for the incumbent or what, whomever, and that comes at the, the risk of younger people. I think back to uh, what year would it have been? The big Australia election? 2011, I think, yeah. Kevin Rudd started talking about big Australia. Yes. He let it slip on 7.30, you might remember, and then everyone freaked out. I actually believe in a big Australia. I make no apology for that. The thing that bemused me about, or perhaps amused me, about that whole thing was you suddenly had this competition between both parties to talk down a big immigration program, mm. to talk down the concept of big Australia. 
at the same time as both parties were pledged to run quite expansionary immigration programs, right? So, so they, they were both of them. If you look at the numbers that they were talking about bringing in, they were the same as always, and it was that was done for economic reasons. That's right. The politics was saying, let's not talk about population. We want to bring population under control at the same time as the policy was doing what it had always done. So I wonder whether the policy is really ambushed by the politics rather than the politics just being a sideshow that distracts us from what's actually going on with the policy. And, and yes, and we only need to look at the 2019 budget to see that again. We had the, the government saying uh, we're going to reduce permanent migration and they did, they cut the intake, but hidden in the expectations of population, they expected greater net overseas migration. So Abel, Liz mentions the 2019 budget there. I think you might have read that more times and more closely than anybody else <laughs> on the planet. And I understand it's in your top five texts of all time <laughs> to read. Um, so I'm just going to give you free reign on this. What, what, what is it that's in that budget that really catches your eye? Well, whenever the budget is published, I, I go to a portion of the budget that most people probably don't, and that's <laughs> Appendix A of Budget Paper 3. Oh, classic Appendix A. <laughs> yes, and, and if you haven't read that appendix, you're really missing out. <laughs> yeah. So in the last budget, Appendix A of Budget Paper 3 said over the next four years, that is uh, from 2019 through to 2022, Australia's population was going to go grow at an average of 450,000 per annum. So that's migration plus births, presumably net of deaths. Correct, correct. So both natural increase and net migration combined, they said would grow at 450,000 people per annum. Only twice in Australia's history has there been any single year that we've got to 450,000. To have four years in a row at 450,000 is indeed or would have been historic. That, that underpinned, in my view, the argument in the budget that real economic growth would grow to 3% per annum and remain at that level for a decade. That underpinned the promise of the Prime Minister that his government would create 250,000 jobs per annum. You can't create 250,000 jobs per annum without increasing or having a reasonably high level of net migration because you just don't have enough people to fill those jobs. And thirdly, it underpinned the long-term budget surpluses. Whilst the government may well have been able to deliver a, service, a surplus, leaving aside COVID, in 2019-20 for that year, for it to be able to deliver long-term surpluses, it needed that injection of net migration. In other words, we're seeing an economic construct built on assumptions which were never going to be delivered. And are emphatically not going to be delivered now. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, just to hear you run through those assumptions, yes, they were always fantastic, but now they seem ethereal. They're from another world. And so I suppose there's not really much point in placing much stock in the assumptions of the 2020 budget on this. But the pattern is really, really clear. We're, we're looking at negative migration, right, where more people end up leaving Australia than coming to Australia in the short term as a result of COVID and all of these things. So once you have fundamentally altered the nature of the, what we call it, the economic substructure of Australia, then what happens? I mean, do, do we have to rethink the, the whole way that we go about building our economy? Or is it about going back to what we had and trying to figure out a way 
to get back to the kind of migration numbers that we were talking about? I find the two go hand in hand. You can't use immigration independently of your economic recovery strategy. Immigration has to be part of that strategy. It has to be an ingredient of that strategy. Whenever Australia's economy has been strong, net migration has been high. Whenever Australia's economy has been weak, net migration has been low. The challenge now is how do you bring the two to grow together? Yes. And that's, that's complicated. And I don't think it's a simple matter of saying, well, let's just increase the numbers. It's, it's just not that simple. Why is it not that simple? Well, think about it this way. One of the ways that we grew the intake from 2000 onwards, it burst forward uh, that growth in net migration, predominantly driven by an increase in overseas students. If we are going to increase overseas students again, we need to have a reasonably low level of unemployment because growing the overseas students beyond a, a relatively small number requires those overseas students to be able to access employment that enables them to survive. Who's going to want to come to study in Australia if they're not going to be able to get a job? Especially if you've borrowed a lot of money to pay your fees and you don't have a lot of money left after you've paid your fees. Let me bring a couple of these things together because Lears makes the point that part of whether or not we get international students, we get migrants coming back to Australia to contribute economically is how we receive them socially. We have heard from the opposition via Christina Keneally that we should perhaps think twice about more migration coming in temporarily at least because they compete with Australian workers and we need to have an Australian jobs first approach. I think that's a bit of a live debate within the Labor Party, but nonetheless, she's the most vocal voice on that thus far. And at the start of this pandemic, you have the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, telling international students uh, in relatively polite terms, but also very clear terms, go home. At times like this, if you're a visitor in this country, um, it is time, as it has been now for some while, and I know many visitors have, to make your way home. Which I know has been a real issue. The, the university sector got very upset <laughs> about the Prime Minister saying that because a lot did, did go home and others then who couldn't for whatever reason were stuck here and weren't given any support and we hear reports of lots of them not being able to find food and all kinds of you know even accommodation all of this sort of basic stuff they're now struggling with so it's a fair mix that's going on there isn't it like you take all that together and the question for me I, mean, I might throw this to you first Liz and then after that you Abel but what impact does that combination of factors have on the question of whether or not we can recover economically. We have people being spat on in our streets. We have people who have reported, and we've seen footage of this, being hit, kicked, punched in the head, had verbal abuse thrown at them because they look like they are not the white European Australian norm. We have proven ourselves to be not as multicultural in every sense of the word as we pride ourselves on. It's frightening to be something or someone that looks the other in Australia at the moment, more so than I think for a long time. So we've got to also factor in the social side of whether or not people feel that it's safe to risk 
coming to Australia versus going to, say, for example, Canada. Remember the other countries we're competing with here. I was going to say we're better than some of the competition. I don't think the US and the UK would look as inviting in that respect. Ah, but but when we look at where um, students think that they're going to get the best benefit from or migrants, young migrants are going to get the best benefit from, they would still more likely suggest the US than Australia because we are so physically disconnected. COVID grants us a bit of a gift in, in the terms of while it's been a devastating disruption, with this disruption, we are granted a gift in a bit of a reset. We can sit back and use this time to reimagine ourselves. What does Australia want to be and how are we going to get to that, that end goal or that moving target? We will need immigration to help sustain the economic well-being of this country. We are faced with this, with this definite risk that our well-being in this country could fall backwards so the country that we're leaving to subsequent generations could be less than the one, the quality of, of the country we've experienced. That's Liz's analysis of that sort of constellation of events. Do you share similar thoughts? Certainly the, there's an important issue around multiculturalism, citizenship, acceptance and tolerance. Between 1949 and 2005, it was, I think it was September 2005, Australian governments, both sides, both major political parties had a view that helping permanent residents become citizens quickly was important public policy. From September 2005, we have decided, for whatever reason, that helping permanent residents become citizens quickly is no longer good public policy. I think that goes to the core of what we, are, what we have changed in terms of our approach to immigration. I think there is merit in both political parties going back and visiting that one. I don't have a view on, on levels of immigration as strongly as others do, nor do I have a strong view on what Christina Keneally said. But I would go back to one important point, and that is a point that John Maynard Keynes made in the late 1930s, which was the last time the developed world was facing significant levels of population ageing. There he said, when populations age rapidly, your biggest challenge is weak aggregate demand. During a period when populations are becoming younger, that is, the working age to population ratio is rising, aggregate supply becomes a more important focus of public policy. My fear right now is that the current treasurer seems to be thinking that the supply side of the economy is what we should be focusing on, whereas if you listen to Keynes during a period of population ageing, it's the demand side you need to focus on. So to make this concrete, just to make sure I've got what you're saying right, by supply side, you mean things like tax cuts for businesses as a way of stimulating economic growth, creating jobs? Correct. Reaganism and Thatcherism. Right. As opposed to bringing more people in that will then want to buy more services that will then create those jobs. Correct. That stimulates the demand side, as does dealing with issues of in income and wealth inequality. That was the point that, that Keynes made. He said the best way with an ageing population to stimulate aggregate demand is to address income and wage inequality. Right, which in practical terms now means giving money back to or giving money to people at the lower end of the income spectrum because they will spend that money. Ten News First Person brings you quality stories from the Ten News First team. Yeah, it was intense. 
it was uh, Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. Subscribe to 10 News First Person wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so then let's look at the social dimensions of this uh, as they play out. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine Australia in a recession, perhaps even a depression as a result of COVID, slowly struggling to come out of it and then turning its attention to whether or not it wants to ramp up migration or somehow boost population. Maybe that's a reintroduction of the baby bonus and the um, have one for the country uh, that Peter Costello uh, ran with when he was treasurer. One for your husband and one for your wife and one for the country. How do you think Australians who are in a recession struggling to find a job would respond to a policy that says we're going to bring in a whole lot of migrants, for example? I think unless you do it in a way that makes good, good sense, I think they would respond very poorly. In the short term, what you need to do is focus on migrants that will either create investment businesses and thereby generate jobs, or you need to focus on crucial skills where the migrant is brought in on an employer-sponsored basis, which doesn't risk the, the possibility that the migrant remains unemployed for long times. And both of those need to be carefully explained to the Australian people before you embark down that path. But that was the way we looked at it after the 91 recession. Those were the two areas we thought were important to focus on. Yeah, it would take quite a U-turn in the way that public conversations on this go, though, wouldn't it, Liz? That's the, that's the point. Yeah, and that's, that's something that definitely informs my outlook and my thinking in terms of the the way that we get out of this mess. The other thing I want to pull you up on, Waleed, is whether or not a baby bonus actually does lead to increased fertility rates. It doesn't necessarily. So the latest research that we have available from a demographic point of view suggests that people were not having babies to get a plasma TV. It was all demographic. It was going to happen anyway. So Costello cannot take um, responsibility for people going out and having more babies. Instead, what leads to people having babies is the knowledge that there's certainty and support for them to do so in society. And at the moment, if we rely on survey data to to indicate what's the story, it suggests that Australians realise that there are way too many barriers for them to realise their intentions or desires for their family size. Well, hence the um, hence the baby slump that we're witnessing that I mentioned at the start of the show. Indeed, which is particularly for people who are considering having their first. So the research that came out seemed to suggest that if you've got a kid already, the current COVID experience and the recession and all of that, all of the uncertainty, won't delay you having a second or a third or fourth, whatever. But it's the people who are contemplating having their first that are really delaying that. My expectation is that COVID being the massive disruption it it has been, we were already seeing disruptive impacts from climate change prior to that, in addition to the, the socioeconomic barriers as to juggling family and work and home ownership and all of these things. 
meaning that people were already seeing a decline in the total fertility rate. So that's the average of births per woman. So we were going to see a, a decline anyway. COVID, based on previous research, we would expect people to delay, postpone, or even forego having children over this period. My concern is that if that then becomes a social norm, and that certainly we've seen internationally as fertility rates decline to around 1.6, 1.5, 1.6 is where it's expected to go, we're likely to then see more, it become a social norm of very small families. Now, when we're talking about the average of one child per family or thereabouts, there are you know, some quite significant social impacts for the child. They could be good, they could be equally bad, but also for society generally. And the COVID impacts have largely fall on young people and women. So we've got this kind of perfect storm of social problem that if we do not address, and I unfortunately I don't see them being addressed, it's going to impact this country for a long time. Which then leaves us with the migration puzzle because clearly migration is going to have to fill some of that. And so I'm going to come back, as promised, Liz, to that question of competition, which I, I think has actually been threaded through the conversation to some extent. Uh, but I want to come to you on this because, you know, this has really been your life's work in some ways is, is making Australia competitive. It, it sounds like at some point when COVID begins to recede from our experiences, as a world, I mean, we'll be in a bidding war for talent, basically. And I wonder how you think Australia will go in that bidding war. We have the potential to do very well. We have a number of attributes that make us a standout in that bidding war. The fact that we've managed COVID well is, is just an additional attribute that we will have that gives give us an advantage. Our multicultural nature certainly helps enormously. Our long-term success in terms of growing the economy and, and growing per capita income is also a factor. So, you know, we, we have a lot of attributes, but there are two things that, are, that worry me. One is it's unclear to me that the government is keen to explain to the Australian public a long-term positive role of immigration in our future. There seems to be an enormous reluctance to talk about that, whereas my recollection, whilst John Howard didn't talk about that, Peter Costello and, oddly enough, Philip Raddock did talk about that quite extensively when they were ramping up the program. Yeah, they, were often, they often swamped themselves with the refugee and boat people talk, but you're right, when, when they weren't talking about that, it didn't get as much press. But That's true. They were, yeah, they, they were true. talking about that. In fact, part of it was they were saying we're safeguarding the integrity of that migration program and people's confidence in it by keeping the boats out, that if the boats come in, then we feel like people will lose faith in migration generally. And you can buy or not buy that theory um, or that explanation, but that was definitely what they were saying. Yes, and, and that has been the explanation well before them. The same explanation was used. And, uh, you know, irrespective of what you think about boat people, I would be surprised if either party changes its position on those anytime soon. I think that's right. And that, that goes back to our history. So that's the first thing. I think there's, they've got to be able to prepare to explain it and then they need to design it in the right way that responds, so proceeds hand in hand with economic recovery, not necessarily leads. This isn't a... It's very difficult to think about this uh, because it is often chicken and egg, whether the economic recovery comes before the increase in migration or the increase in migration helps the economic recovery. I don't think anyone's actually ever worked out what the answer to that is, but the two definitely go hand in hand. And that requires 
I believe, a probably a root and branch review of the way we've designed our visa categories now. They have become, I think, many of them have become ill-suited for the purpose of economic recovery. We've been making so many silly tinkering changes for so long now that it's become very piecemeal and really quite a mess. So the take-home message really is, Abul, that you have to go back into the public service. I'm glad we arrived at that conclusion. <laughs> Not my age, really. <laughs> It's time for the watching brief. Lisa might start with you. What are you looking at? What space are you watching here? At the moment, I'm deeply concerned about inequality. And this definitely has roots in what we've discussed today. But the idea that there's so little social mobility in Australia and, you know, the idea that if you've been born to a richer family, you're likely to live a a very fantastic life compared to someone who's born into a poorer family. And I I really hope that with the disruptive impacts of COVID, we're able to take a bit of a reset and reconsider the issues of inequality and in particular housing affordability and how that fits with the future of Australia and population wellbeing generally. I've not seen many hopeful signs from governments or the government or the opposition in terms of uh, redressing inequality. And I really urge young people, get angry, demand transparency and scrutiny of government so that we do see change here and that young people aren't lumped with an unfair burden on ensuring the sustainability of this country. Well, I was hoping for a watch this space, but Liz started a revolution. So top that. (laughs) I certainly can't top that one. (laughs) Join me, Abul. Join the revolution. Yeah. I'm I'm an old public servant, Liz. I'm not sure whether a revolution retag. Yeah, you still do. No, you do revolutions. You just wear a cardigan while you do it. So it's okay. And sandals with socks. (laughs) But in terms of what I'm watching Mount for, next year, 2021, it has been postponed for a year, the government produces its next intergenerational report. And that looks at what's Australia's long-term future over a period of 40 years. The first intergenerational report that Peter Costello prepared brought about enormous change in Australia. But each subsequent intergenerational report sadly has become less of a policy document and more of a political document. And I think we need to be watching out and pressing government to ensure that what we get in 2021 is a genuine policy document. I'm not so fussed about what the specific policies are. That's to be debated. But if it's a genuine policy document, that enables a genuine open debate. If it's a political document, then it'll just be the two sides throwing stones at each other and getting us nowhere. I'm looking out for a really solid, well-prepared, honest policy document for what our future looks like for the next 40 years. This is the perfect way to end this podcast. It really is. Liz says, young people get angry and rise up. And Abel says, there's a report coming out next year. I look forward to reading it. Fantastic. But there are still elements. There are still elements of a, a rising up, if you like, in what Abel is saying, is that we want greater scrutiny and transparency in understanding the future of this place. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, I see that. Yeah. He's, he's wearing the blood red cardigan. He's, he's really he's going for And throwing around his fist. I love it. Liz Allen, Abel Rizvi, it's been a delight and a privilege having access to you for this. Thank you very much for helping me figure out what happens next. Thank you, Wally. Get angry. <laughs> <laughs>
What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.